Welcome to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Early in 2022, we started Indigenous Voices, a little mini-series within the Saltonite Hour to help us get to know Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people, learn from their stories and legends, and learn about their culture, languages, and spirituality. This is all part of walking together with them towards true healing and reconciliation. So far, we've met several people, First Nations and Métis, from across the country. We've spoken about the residential school system, land claims, child protection and welfare, and intergenerational trauma, among other topics. You can listen to all those conversations on our website, slmedia.org podcast. Today, we will meet two more people, Sean Vincent, an accomplished graphic designer from the Red River Métis in Manitoba, and Michelle Sam, a university professor, researcher, and consultant from the Tunaja people in British Columbia. Both of them speak about the importance of family, language, and pursuing your dreams. I'm Deacon Pedro, and welcome to our sixth episode of our Salt and Light Hour special series, Indigenous Voices. I met Sean Vincent because he was hired to design the logo for the papal visit to Canada this year. He is the owner of Vincent Design in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and is likely one of the first indigenous graphic designers in Canada. I am Sean Vincent. That's who I am. Uh, I am a midshift uh, graphic designer slash artist slash entrepreneur. Um, slash many other things uh, <laughs> out of uh, uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, was where I live, but my home is in St. Laurent, Manitoba, um, which is a traditional uh, Métis settlement. And um, yeah, that's who I am. Um, you use the word Michif, and I mm-hmm. think people are used to Métis. Can, mm-hmm. Is there a distinction or why is your preference to use to describe yourself as Michif? Uh, they're both Métis, but Michif is primarily used uh, by Métis people who uh, reside on the traditional Red River settlement. Okay. So it's uh, yeah, it's 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 Métis. It's it's more of a regional regional uh, Métis. How about that? And so the Red River settlement is, of course, um, well, Winnipeg and and the surrounding areas. So and and south of that. Yeah, so. Okay, and then you said that you you I mean you you work I know in Winnipeg, but you're based or you live in Saint Laurent. I I I think that's where you're from originally. I mean, you grew up there. Uh, I was there um, as a as a child a lot. My mom was from there, so which is why we were there all the time. Um, and then my mom moved to the city, and then uh, and then my grandfather uh, gave me the land, um, and because it was. Uh, under the promise that it stays in the family, never to be sold, because it is traditional. It is very old. It's it's. If my son has a son, or if my daughter has a child, or whatever, it'll be six generations on that property. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, um. So can you maybe explain that a little more? We have had other Métis uh, 
uh, people on the on the on the program before, so I, th I think our listeners are maybe a little familiar with with Métis, definitely with Louis Riel and and the Red River, oh, yeah. uh, uh, a little bit of that history. But uh, but I'm intrigued about the fact that your grandfather gave you the land. Is that is that because there's treaties as well involved with uh, Métis people, or is it? Uh, like, no, there's no, there's no work? treaty. There's no treaties involved with Métis people, though there is a treaty that's outstanding, unresolved from, gosh knows when, eight, late 1800s. Yeah. But that's a, that's a for a completely different discussion. But this is actually script land, so it, it is it is traditional script land. I think which I think one of your, um, I think uh, Cassidy Karen was Cassidy talking about explained script. it. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of those those original pieces that was. Um, that was uh, that was script land meant for for Métis people, but uh, obviously swindled and had many restrictions and and things that prevented uh, actual Métis people from acquiring the land that they were they were promised. So, um, yeah. So this is part of those one of those small uh, pockets. So Woodridge, Manitoba is one. I believe Winnipeg is is also one. Okay. There's Saint Laurent. There's um, Saint Norbert. Um, there's a bunch of little pockets of, okay. of land. Yeah. And it's how far from, from Winnipeg is Saint Laurent? Uh, it is roughly door to door. It's about an hour. So okay. yeah. So it's not too far. It's uh, Northwest on, we have two big lakes in Manitoba, Lake Manitoba and Lake yeah. Winnipeg. It's on the South point of Lake Manitoba. Okay. So. Okay. And it's still, I mean, it's still, it's a Métis settlement. It's oh, Métis absolutely. Yes. If you drive through there, it's it's through and through a, a full Métis town. There's almost every house has a Métis flag. Um, big fishing community, big a uh, lot of uh, really important fiddlers have come out of there. Oh, yeah. Emil Emil Lavallee came out of there. He yeah. is um, won awards, national awards. Um, he actually lives. He lived across the street from where I am. Oh yeah. Um, so a lot of prominent people have come out of Saint Laurent. Um, uh, Tracy Leost, who is an athlete, a young advocate for youth sports. Paul Chartrand, who's a scholar and a professor and um, a lawyer for Indigenous uh, rights across Canada. Right. Um, Many, many, many famous people. Many I, I famous say, people. How, how about how about all the famous Métis come out of Saint Laurent? I was going to say, including <laughs> that famous graphic designer Sean Vincent. <laughs> I'm so, going to just. I love it. <laughs> when, when you were so, when you were growing up, even after you moved to Winnipeg, so mm. you were very, you grew up very comfortable with your Métis heritage. It was a normal yeah. thing. Um, it was. It's funny because it was. We 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 grew up, like on the land, like we were. We were always outside there fishing, uh, doing all sorts of things outside all the time. And, and I think a lot of the, that was a lot from my mom um, and my dad, but I think primarily from my mom, but we were always there. Yeah. Growing up, we, we knew who we were, but um, there, again, I, 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 I am one of those stories where a lot of the knowledge and language wasn't passed down. Um, because of just that, you know, the need to fit in. Um, and even, even and, here, and here's a funny story. Here's a perfect example. So my mom spoke Michif and she spoke Soto and she spoke, uh, she knew some Cree as well. And, uh, but she knew French and English because uh, Saint Laurent, you know, once, once the, the French uh, settled, settlers settled, it became a French town. So what ended up happening, of course, is 
you know, French became the language and a lot of the indigenous languages weren't, were, were, weren't allowed to mm-hmm. be spoken. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, this, this mentality of when my mom growing up of, you know, those just don't fit in, I think kind of just stuck. And so, right. and so in, in, in going to school, I remember in French and I, I would come home, of course, you would have your French and I would, you know, I would ask my mom, you know, mom, how do you say this? And then she would say something. And then I would go back to my, my, my teacher, my French teacher, obviously non-indigenous. And he'd go, that's not how you say that. Yeah. Like I, I've never heard of that before. And then I'd have to go back to my mom and then I'm pitting these two people against yeah, each other. Yeah, so yeah. Interesting. My mom would, my mom would always just say, just say it the way he says it. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, a short story on sort of the, you know, how it came to be where I don't, you know, I wasn't sort of, th- these weren't passed down and, uh, Right, and I think I think later in her life, she's passed now. But later in her life, she, uh, I think she definitely regretted it because she got to see um, all of the the protests and the movements from I don't know more to uh, you know the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, all all of these these things. She got to see it, and I think it kind of it, it really it gave her energy, which unfortunately came later. Right. Um, but at least she got to see it, mm-hmm. and I think you know at, at near the end of her time, I think she was very 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 proud of who who she was, which made me happy. Yeah, because I knew who I was, and I kind of connected. I I I. I I, I, I more accepted who I, I was. Uh, and then through that really kind of put my, my focus into who I was. And, and, and I did that kind of alongside with her. It, it's kind of, it's kind of strange, but um, yeah, that's how that came to be. Do you think, and again, not to diminish the particular cultural heritage, but is it the same? I mean, I think a lot of immigrants will come in. There's a lot of Ukrainians, let's say in Winnipeg, and maybe the second, third generation, the similar similar thing might happen. The parents might think, oh, we want our kids to learn English, and then they lose the language. Would you say that it's a similar experience, or is it different because, because Métis people are indigenous in that sense to Oh, yeah. To, oh, to, no, 100%. To land? 100%. 100%. Um, uh, my mom was indigenous. My dad was uh, non-indigenous. So, and it's funny because they had four boys. Um, I have three brothers, and so mm-hmm. two two are, are dark haired, dark skin, and then my brother Ryan and I are light skin, light hair. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of split down the middle. But I mean, I remember stories of my mom not feeling welcome, even in certain you know, events or, 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 you know, situations on my dad's side. So I, I absolutely due to, you know, not only the, the color of her hair or her skin, but the stereotypes. And, and she was the, recognized as because indigenous. She, she was, she was native, native right? Yeah. So, which is a derogatory term today, obviously, but yeah. it's, that's, that was the term then, right? Yeah. Like, and, um, and it was, uh, yeah, and I remember, I remember her. I remember her sadness in some days, and she, in my dad saying, "Don't worry about it," you know, and telling me to go away. And, mm. You know, there were there were a lot of I remember situations of of you know, of, you know racism and, and and discrimination and and things like that. I remember that. So I mean, I can't necessarily I don't blame her in any regard. No, at all, at all. Um, um, 
you know, for the, for, for her, for her surviving essentially is what she did. She moved to the city when she was 15 by herself, um, 15, you know? And so she, she was, she was always a survivor. She was, Mm -hmm. uh, she was fierce. She was stubborn. Um, but she was kind. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's sort of the the story behind that. (laughs) When you were growing up, let's say, you know, those adolescent years where, where I think all of us struggle with all kinds of things, were you also Mm -hmm. kind of struggling with that uh, sort of an identity thing? Did you lose or stray away and then have to come back to those indigenous roots or Métis roots? I, at an early age, I remember always saying, you know, and it's funny because again, you're kids and you just don't know the right terminology, but I remember saying, yeah, I'm native. And then people would go, you're not native. And I would be, yes, I am. Right. So there was this like, yes, I am. But it, and you had to, and you got mad. And then, and, and of course, kids being kids, I mean, looking at it from their perspective, I don't look native. So as a white passing, you know, Machif guy, I can, I can see that, but even at a young age, I knew who I was. Right. You know, um, and uh, and I remember going back and telling my mom and 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 then my mom would, you know, she would always say she would always have some, you know, way of, of just saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, don't don't worry about it. Don't make a big deal out of it. And um, so, yeah, I, got, I definitely got support from her and my dad, too. My dad was uh, I mean, my dad was talking about two people that, uh, you know, they say that um, uh, soulmates don't exist. Like, absolute garbage i i witnessed it firsthand you know witnessed firsthand what a great yeah that's a great example a lot of a lot of people don't have that um right there i was i was going to ask you about your dad i mean he you said he's he was not native so i mean in a sense so you are i mean you're metis on your mother's side yep you're you're also a mix because your father is not indigenous so you're kind of double double metis if i can say it yeah Um, yeah for sure and it, it, it's interesting because it's like he's he's from the Power View Pine Falls side. So he's on the other side of like Winnipeg. Uh, that's where he grew up and French. Um, yeah. French, French Catholic from a family of 14. Um, wow. Big family. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just wild. Yeah. At what point yeah. at what point did you did you start uh, with the art and, and feeling that you were drawn to that to be more art, to artistic and maybe deciding to be a graphic designer? As far as as far as I can remember, watching Bob Ross on Channel Three PBS. Wow. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I, I I was I would watch him, and you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, watching him make these these uh, just basically just like creating these beautiful pieces of art so easily, and I went, well, that's easy. I can do that. Yeah. And so I, for years and years, I w- I would try, not knowing he's using oils. You're right. So <laughs> super expensive paint, which you can blend forever. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I'm using watercolors. watercolors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, I, I it, it, grade two, grade three, I was creating Bob Ross replicas for my aunties. And, uh, hmm. and uh, so it just kind of went there. And then grade seven, as soon as there was an art class in junior high, that was it. <sighs> Nothing else yeah. mattered. It was just... I became good friends with my art teachers even after evening. Yeah. And uh, no, I just, that's where I wanted to be. Math, social studies. No, yeah, forget it. <laughs> no, that's good. And, yeah. and of course you went on to, to study art as uh, in university or in college. 
and now yep. you're you're a graphic designer. Do you identify specifically as a Métis or Indigenous? Oh yeah, designer. Oh, absolutely. So that is part of. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was um, it was just a natural, it was a natural thing. Um, so we had no money growing up. So <laughs> we were poor. We were four <laughs> kids, four boys in a two bedroom apartment. Wow. Um, and so it it was. My dad was a machinist. My mom had been like a manager of a Robin's donuts for years. Mm. Um, and so we were poor for, you know, it was, it, but we had fun. Um, we were close. My brothers and I were close and we were on the outskirts of Winnipeg at that time. There was no settled. There was no, like um, there was, there was no, uh, there was nothing past where we were. It was just bush and trees. So we got to play essentially was what like a field uh, growing up, which was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but through college or through high school, I, I sort of knew where I wanted to, I knew what I wanted to do. And everyone kept telling you, go to fine arts, go to university. And there's no possible way I can afford that. No way. Cause I actually moved out when I was 17, mm. uh, and went to go live, uh, with my older brother. So I moved out at 17, got a full-time job for, so for five years, I worked, just worked to survive. And then, uh, I discovered, or I, I was told about this Red River College, now Red River Polytechnique mm. um, course called graphic design. And so I inquired and uh, I, uh, I got the portfolio requirements. I entered and boom, I, three years of solid work, graduated. Um, I took the graphic design and then the advanced graphic design, got work right after um, mm -hmm. just discovered work, what it was like working in the graphic design field in the industry, um, immediately recognized that it was not, it wasn't fun, but the job was fun. The atmosphere wasn't fun, but the work was fun. Okay. And so I think it, what it, it, it I was, I, I remember saying, you know what, this could be a lot better. <laughs> I mean, people could be treated better. I think the the respect for designers and, and creatives could be better. And in, uh, so the natural path, uh, a friend of mine, Ed, Ed, Ed Kidd, he was the executive director of a, uh, what was called the Aboriginal Chamber of Commerce at that time. And he, uh, he's, uh, he's a, a First Nation out of Fisher, Fisher River, I believe. Um, and he, uh, he said, you got to come. It's really great because him and I were friends. Um, and so he's like, you, you got to come. I know, I know, I know you're a designer. You should come to this big event. It's the AGM. So I went there immediately became a member and I immediately, uh, loved being in an environment of, of in, just indigenous people. It's really what it was. It was a room full of indigenous people and, and leaders in all sorts of industries mm -hmm. and owners of all different businesses. And at that time, I was a graphic designer, like full at working already at a firm. So I, I knew a little bit about graphic design and what, what the possibilities or, uh, possibilities were with it. And at that table I was having dinner at, I met, I, I got my first client. He needed a logo. And so I did a logo for him. And then I got to do, I got to do design based on my, on me, mm -hmm. uh, representation, representation mm -hmm. of, of me. Yeah. And that was amazing to sort of have it to, to do your own thing and not have someone tell you otherwise. And, and then I fell in love. That was, yeah. it. and then one, that person referred me and we got more referrals. So now I was really focused on at that time in 2007, something that I don't think kind of existed, which was 
indigenous graphic design. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was pretty, pretty crazy that, um, you know, it, it, all of these organizations and nonprofits and communities now were, they could see what was possible with, with design, right. And how you can really up, up your game in terms of your materials, your marketing materials, right. your brands, your logos, um, even a website. And I mean, I lost my shirt on every job, but I didn't care. I just yeah. wanted to do the job. I didn't, I wanted to do the work and have mm -hmm. that creative freedom. Um, and so that, that's how that sort of came to be. And, yeah. uh, it was and look wild. at you! Look at you now! You got your own your own uh, company, Vincent Designs, uh, and you're also. I can I say that you're inspiring other young people, other Indigenous young people, also as they find their way. I mean, I know that you have a scholarship fund, the Vincent Design Scholarship Fund. Um, yep. Why is that important for you? Because I had no opportunity. I, I didn't have anything. I and I wanted to. I want. I literally wanted to give something back. I think. To, I mean, we have the capabilities. Why not? And it's more of enticing people to get into the field. Right? Is it because <laughs> is it because young indigenous people? I mean, because we're still stuck in this in this world where they're not encouraged. The teachers are not giving them ideas or or or, or, or encouraging them to actually strive to be whoever they want to be. Um, is that why? I mean, do we still have young indigenous people who think, "Oh, I can't go to university. I can't go to college." Is that is that the reality still? I think it's a combination of finding confidence and resources and support systems. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's, that those are big factors. Yeah. Um, perhaps the college doesn't represent them. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. I just know that there's a demand in every industry for indigenous um, workers. And I mean, developers, photographers that I know they, they and don't get me wrong. They exist. <laughs> okay. They're just all hired, you know, because there's a, such a there's a demand for them, and, that, and that's the issue. There's a demand for them, and there's just they're they're not there. So um, that's sort of why I, I made the scholarship yeah. was just to sort of and, and maybe entice or support or or give um, uh, give opportunity to yeah. anyone interested and maybe help out people who are who are going down that path. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, I, I always say, you know, if you need any help with, uh, you know, portfolio or work feedback on work, let me know. So yeah, uh, it, I also sort of give back uh, that as much as possible as well. Um, and I think it's just that I have the opportunity to do it. Why, why, why don't I? And, Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I volunteer uh, throughout <laughs> the community as it is. So it's, it's just something maybe that's natural for me. Um, I, I, uh, we're almost out of time, but I don't want to let you go wow, before okay. I ask okay. you. No, I want to ask you about, I mean, you designed the, the logo, the walking together logo for the papal visit. And, and yep. uh, I mean, everybody still talks about it. I still, you know, wear it on t-shirts and um, tell me what was that experience like for you to be part of that? It seems so long ago now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it is like only a few months. Yeah, it's just I know. crazy. I know. I think, yeah, I think that experience is, it's phenomenal. Like it's just all, everything about it, you know, was, it was a huge learning experience for me. Absolutely massive, uh, profound even um, on, on many ways. The, the process, it's the process itself the design, the actual design itself, then the journey of me going to Edmonton, Edmonton and the West Machis to to see the Pope twice, seeing it everywhere, 
and then learning on how important this logo was for everyone. Um, and primarily people of faith, right? Like that's a, that's a big one. It was the, the big eye opener for me when it was at, when I was at Muscochis and seeing all the, the survivors there and uh, how many were, you know, Catholic and, uh, and how much, and how much it meant for, for the Pope to be there for them. Like I'm sitting in the crowd. I was actually, they plunked me in with the survivors. So all I was doing was handing out tissues. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and myself included, you know, dabbing my, my, my cheeks. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really powerful to be there. Um, the whole thing was just incredible. That's all I can really say. There's yeah. just, it, you know, one, one day maybe I'll, I'll write an article or a, a long blog piece with, with details. Sean, yeah. um, it's been a great, I mean, for me, it was just a great, a, to meet you and to work a little bit to be part of that i think i can say i was a little bit contributed to the logo oh um, yeah big time yeah, and uh but thank you and thank you for sharing with us a little bit about about who you are and what you do and and uh to our listeners vincent design just look it up there's a scholarship available for you so yeah exactly just apply take his money and run <laughs> sounds good that's exactly what it's there for all right sean take care yeah you too thanks so much In re-listening to my conversation with Sean, I was struck by how much he spoke about his mother. Clearly, he had a great love and admiration for her. I wish I would have had a chance to know her. It is obvious that Sean is proud of his heritage, even though much of it, including the language, was not passed on. This is a very common experience among Indigenous people in Canada. If you are a young person interested in pursuing graphic design studies, I encourage you to go to vincentdesign.ca so you can be inspired and also learn about the scholarship that they offer. Michelle Sam has several undergraduate degrees and a master's in social work. She is a speaker, facilitator, and workshop leader, and is invited to do seminars and presentations all over. She was adopted into a Dutch Catholic family in Ontario as a three-year-old. She now lives in her mother's ancestral land in the Tunaha Territory in British Columbia. Who a Gothic Missopaski, who took his cocony, now San Mayeki, who took his cocony. And so, what I'm saying in Tanaka is first of all, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're talking this morning, so good morning to anyone and everyone who's listening. Uh, my name is uh, Michelle, so that's been translated into Tanaka to Missopaski, uh, and that I'm grateful for today. Uh, and I'm thankful for today. And so we don't have, um, yeah, so that's a, a normal greeting that we would have. Um, and um, And so what that translates into, it's not a direct translation, but what that directs, um, that, that interprets to is um, that I'm grateful 
that were making space, that were taking time for these big ideas. And so that's, um, yeah, those are really important welcomes. And and already I have about 10,000 questions to ask you. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to pretend to even attempt to say your name in Tunaha. But so you said that it, Michelle has been translated, but obviously, so so what is the actual literal translation of your name in Tunaha? Uh, so Misas Paski, me Misas is is Michael. Um, we had a head chief named Michelle or Michael um, going back, I think, at the 1800s. And so I'm actually female, the the woman Michael. Um, so that's who I'm named after. Okay. And so that's what that translation is. And so names are really important because, um, like, we're called Indigenous people right now. That's because of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And Canada is now calling us Indigenous instead of Indian. I still have an Indian status card. I have Aboriginal rights according to the Canadian Constitution. People call me First Nation because we have banned or, or reserves, lands reserved for Indians, which are called bands, um, and then the band community. So there's a lot of complication. And then for myself, because of self-determination and self, you know, um, self-development. And, and the names we call ourselves, I start with Tanaha Aksmaknik or Tanaha human beings. And that is how we would refer to ourselves. And right. so for me, it goes right back to your name, right? Who are you? So, um, and that's... Mm -hmm. No, sorry to interrupt. This is fascinating. So Tanaha is, you, 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 you're a Tanaha, I love how you, you're a Tanaha human person. You're, a, you, you're part of the Tanaha people. Um, but you didn't always know this, Michelle. No, I didn't. You, I didn't. You've had to go back and reclaim a lot of this and, and even the language. And I must say, I mean, you and I have known each other for a little bit now, and it's the, this is the most I've heard you speak to Naha. And, and mm -hmm. I know that that is very important to you. So I do hope that we get a chance to talk about that, but can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, uh, and what, yeah, what that was so like? And I have news for you. I, I did a 23andMe um, ancestry G DNA genetic test um, and right. just got the results back. And as a result of that, I'm actually learning about my father's side. And so I was adopted out as one of the 60 scoop kids. Um, my mom went to residential school here in, in Tanaka Homelands in, in Amakas Tanaka at St. Eugene's uh, Mission. Uh, as and she was, I think, the fourth generation to go through that. Um, as a result of my grandparents um, taking some of their children out of that school and crossing the line because they became international felons, uh, my mom went into child welfare. And uh, yeah, I see your face sort of furrowed brow. That's a whole other conversation. But just to um, just to clarify, so your grandfather, when you said cross the line, you mean he went to the to the United States. He, they, my Cross grandmother the and grandfather crossed the border because they took their children out of the schools and they were graduates of the school, graduates, right. quote unquote. Um, and so they couldn't stay in Canada because it was illegal for them to have their children. And so my mom was in child welfare. And when she aged out, uh, she basically, the story is she got a bus ticket and first month's rent and, you know, basically go wherever. And so she decided to go to Toronto. 
And so I was born in Toronto. She met my dad, um, who's from the East Coast. So he has Mi'kmaq background, uh, Mi'kmaq British Acadian background, which I'm just learning about. And I'm actually meeting a cousin of mine um, this weekend for the first time ever. So I'm 54 years old. So um, I met my dad the first time when I was 23. I found out about my family, about my mother um, when I was 23. I was adopted at three by a Dutch Catholic immigrant family in Richmond Hill, Ontario. And they were not taught, told anything about my background. They were given the, the typical stories of I was abandoned. Um, you know, my mother was an alcoholic or whatever, whatever. All of those pathologies, that's what they were told. And, and um, through, sadly, or maybe not, through the church, uh, there was a real push for good Catholic families to take in us, you know, considered heathens, you know, not doing very well. Um, and so they did. And uh, I was adopted as the youngest of their seven children. And so they are very Dutch, right? Very short, petite, you know, my sister's blonde, blue eyed, beautiful voice, right, et cetera, et cetera. And I am almost six foot tall. And uh, you know, not a small woman <laughs> at all, never going to be mistaken for uh, a, a Dutch girl. And um, yeah, and that's how I was raised. And uh, when I was 23, I found my family, I found out that my mom was one of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, she was murdered when I was 18. Um, I have siblings from her, you know, uh, I'm the oldest of her eight children. Um, and they were raised, the youngest four were with her on and off, uh, but the oldest four of us were all adopted out. And so, um, yes, so I found, I found them in 91, um, and started to try to make sense of my life at that point at 23 years old, and nobody had a clue of what I was talking about. And, uh, native, native child, uh, and family in Toronto was just starting. And so I, I got to know a few people there who were really supportive of me um, getting my, you know, making sense of my life, making meaning of my life. Uh, yeah. And so I ended up going to university, um, reconnecting to Indigenous communities in Ontario, uh, Anishinaabe people from Northwestern Ontario, Thunder Bay and East and West really took me in and helped me to, to find some stability um, and through cultural practice, right? So I was given a jingle dress, which is about healing. Um, I was taken to my first powwow and that became very much about, about my life and about, you know, finding health and well-being and finding belief and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I did my university and then I came home. I came to my home, my mother's homelands um, and um, been participating, you know, in our self-development as mm -hmm. since. Yeah. So now I have 10,000 more questions. Um, can we just go back a little bit to, to growing up in, in Richmond Hill, Ontario? Um, did, did, I mean, obviously you knew that you were adopted. You knew that, um, and I think that for for regular people who are adopted, it's difficult. So how difficult was that for you being, did you feel that this was your family? Did you feel that you did not belong in this family? Um, you struggled yeah. as an adolescent? 
Um, so my adoption, so I was three when I was adopted and, uh, I was still seeing my mother, my, my, my mother, Patricia. Um, and so I was with her on and off, um, up until my adoption and I've never seen my adoption record. My parents have never seen it either. Uh, so when they got me, um, I think, you know, and my mother even tried to change my name. And but I was already a, an established human being like we know, you know, the early years are formative for identity. And so I already had an identity and it was pretty strong. Right. Um, and so being raised as the youngest of their children and there were already issues in that family. I I am a firm believer um, in this time of reconciliation that one of the biggest jobs we all have is to reconcile the historical trauma and the intergenerational trauma as human beings we have sustained through world wars, through famines, through COVID now, through all of these different things have had a huge impact on us, on our development, but also on our relationships and, and on our, and anyone coming from a country, a different country coming here has, has sustained trauma. They're either leaving trauma or the act of leaving your family is an actual trauma as well. And so, so that's to say that, you know, my family is not unique in that. Um, my my adoptive parents lived through occupied Holland as teenagers. Um, they came over, they left their entire family. So I wasn't raised with a sense of community. I wasn't raised with aunts and uncles on a regular basis. I wasn't raised with cousins. I wasn't raised with all of that family. Um, and then on top of that, and neither were my siblings. And so on top of that, I was on the only brown kid I knew about. Um, in grade school, uh, I very much fit into sort of, quote unquote, the Italian community because I'm dark. I'm very dark looking. Uh, so that was sort of a saving grace. But I was I, I was always different. I had a different worldview. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I just saw things in a very, very different way. Um, and so in high school, I went to uh, I made the decision um, at in grade six uh, to apply to go to uh, what was then a junior high school, a Roman Catholic um, high school. And, and I did so because one, it let me wear a uniform. Uh, my parents were not rich. And so I got hand-me-downs. Like I said, my sister was five years older than me and very petite. And I was soon start like outgrowing her hand-me-downs. And I was being bullied in school. And so for me, a completely easy thing was to wear a school uniform. I won't have to deal with that, right? Um, but in the high school, there were a bunch of us who were indigenous, um, Indian. We were native kids. And we all kind of found each other, but we never actually talked about it. We just knew, right? And so we'd kind of hang out. And, and my best friend... Um, from that time, we're still friends. And she came and visited me this summer. And we were talking about that, just how her family history, how she ended up in Newmarket, Ontario, which is where we went to high school, you know, the reserves around Newmarket, where people had come um, to school from were being bussed in. And nobody talked about any of this. We never talked about any of this. And so, but found it just so fascinating that we all kind of found each other at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
so growing up, um, I ended up trying to kill myself at 12. Um, I had, you know, my, my parents were corporal believed in corporal punishment. Um, and so, yeah, I had enough and that was my way out of the pain and the suffering and, uh, not feeling like I'm good enough. And so, um, ended up in a group home and lots of crappy things happen. I'm going to try not to swear for you, (laughs) but, um, you know, I, I, I uh, was placed with a lot of kids that had a lot of social, emotional and psychological issues. Um, there I met other Indigenous people again, young people like myself who were put in situations that were just so foreign um, and we didn't fare well. And so did that, went back, you know, couch surfed. Um, I didn't finish high school. Uh, you know, so many, so many, so many, so many things. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't, I'm so close to my adoptive family um, because I came to recognize through university uh, history because I wanted to understand, first of all, when I found my family in Toronto, there was a lot of other people also finding their families as Indigenous people. And I was like, what the heck? I thought it was just me. They had one of three stories, you know, you were abandoned. They don't know who you are. Um, They, you know, you were removed because of alcohol and drugs or you were removed because of severe abuse. And so I was like, how do we all have these same stories? And so in university, I started with social work and then I looked at English literature because I wanted to understand policy and then I did a degree in Indigenous learning, which is philosophy based and, and about Indigenous peoples relearning who we are and how we are. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> and found out that, you know what, the world is a crazy place. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, you, despite all you went through uh, growing up, you did manage to go to university and and that in itself I'm wondering what was the one thing, do you remember, what would have been the one thing or the one person that motivated you or inspired you so that you could, because I bet you that you probably didn't have the sense that you could go to university or did you? I, so I, I always knew I was smart. So in high school, um, I had a history teacher who was very supportive. Uh, I had math and science teachers also who were like, you can do anything you you want. And so at the time I was asked or my parents were asked, you know, can she go to summer school to catch her up? And um, and the decision was no, she needs to get a job. And so what I recognize now is that my adoptive family, my adoptive parents didn't finish high school because of the Second World War. My mom told me at the beginning of the pandemic that when the shutdown, because my son was in high school at the time, and she said, and I said, yeah, he's done. We don't know what's going to happen. And she's like, that's what happened to me. We got the war broke out. And the following Tuesday, we were asked two questions and that was it. And so I was like, oh, my God, no wonder you didn't value education because <laughs> you didn't have one yourself. Yeah. So um And then in addition to that, to those teachers in the high school, I have a sister-in-law who, and I just talked to her last week about this, and I I talk about her a lot. 
um, who was doing a biology degree. She's a lab manager for a very big research science um, uh, lab. And she would talk to me about her work and wouldn't talk down to me, wouldn't talk um, above me, right? She would just start talking and I'd be asking her questions. And then she reminded me that I had gone to her parents' house with her and she had a bookshelf and I looked at all the books and I was like, did you read all these? And she said, yeah, I had to. And I was like, huh. And so for me, it was like, okay, if she can do this, I can do this. And that's very much how I teach now because I teach in a local college and I teach people, even if they're at college level or community, community education level, that, you know, there's a certain amount of, um, learning how to learn Mm -hmm. and learning about what you want to learn. Right. And, and to, to inspire you to think about the web of, of knowledge. So, yeah. So I don't know if that. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I mean, we always, uh, I think rely on other people to inspire us and motivate us. And, and I think all of us can be thankful. We can all find people in our lives, especially growing up that, that I would have done that for us. Um, I'm going to jump ahead because you eventually did move back to British Columbia. Tell us a little bit about this community where you, where your mother was from and where you live now, the Tunaha people. Yeah. So I, when I was doing my master's thesis, well, I finished my undergraduate work at Lakehead University and I felt like I knew nothing. Um, and despite the three degrees, I was still like, I, like this, I don't, I don't understand. And so I went home, came home the first time through my master's thesis of looking at the perception of the welfare of our children. What does welfare mean to us as Tunaka people? And because the child welfare system is not about child welfare, it's, it's a system, like it's a, it's a completely different system. And so I came home through that research and and that summer I interviewed probably about 100 people, 100 of my own people, many of who have passed now, um, who told me their life stories. And I told them my life stories and they knew my mom and, um, you know, they they knew bits and pieces. And uh, so then I decided to move home to my mom's community because at the time I didn't know my dad. Uh, my dad had told me I was an Indian Italian Nufi, and I had found out that there was a large Mohawk Italian community, and Mohawk people follow their mothers. They honor their fathers by following their matrilineal line. And so I thought, okay, to honor my father, even though I have no relationship with him, I will follow my mother. And so I came back here to um, Amakas Tunaha or Tunaha Homelands. And found out, you know, I was registered as a status Indian to one community, met a grandmother who said, actually, your family belongs over here. Because through the Indian Act, what happened is that we lost our matrilineal lines. And so my grandma, my great grandma, et cetera, et cetera, come from one community, but we got registered to a different community up north. So my siblings still belong to that community. I belong to the community that I, I was told that this is where you're from. So, but I didn't land. Um, I moved around a lot. I was too educated, right? I was intimidating to even my own people um, because I was critical of our self-development. I was actually like 
questioning what we were doing and the decisions and the definitions that federal government or consultants would come in and give us. And I'd be like, well, hang on a second. That's related to, right. And explaining things to people, which made it so that it was like, it wasn't an easy answer. It wasn't an easy negotiation. It was actually, hang on a second. You're pulling a bit of a fast one on us. And so that's exactly what happened with child and family services is that we got delegation for what people said was child welfare, but really, in fact, it was child protection services. So the removal of children into the foster care system, not the entire system of how you raise human beings in a good way. And so that's where you get into the millennial scoop is that we as Indigenous people have now been part of this process of removing our own people and taking on some of those ideologies that aren't ours. And so, you know, lived here, lived in Prince George, went and taught in Prince George, went to UBC and did some research and led a research agenda over there and started to do my PhD, um, looking at the reattachment of Indigenous peoples to landscapes and waterways as a, not a remedy, but as part of reconciliation and reattachment to place and, and healthy identity development. And, um, and then in 2014, 2013, my mentor passed away. So I came back to Cranbrook with my children because my children were in need of a home. And so in 2016, uh, I had the benefit and luxury and privilege actually of buying my first forever home. And so I'm I'm a homeowner, a homeowner and living here in, in my homelands now um, in Cranbrook. Um, just outside of my reserve community. Okay, so that was going to be my question. So Cranbrook, BC, for people that are familiar with British Columbia, that's just outside your traditional Tunaja homeland, or it's in the traditional it's homeland? In the traditional homelands. It's called the East and West Kootenai now, and Kootenai yeah. is actually the anglicized word okay. for Kokni, right? Which Kokni yes. right, is good and it's also a fish now but it's like it's all anglicized to yeah, of course, of course. Um, but the the place where i live is actually traditionally called a kiskasleet which is um where like between the two mountains basically i'm mm -hmm. i'm not giving you the correct interpretation um but and then my office where i'm looking right now actually overlooks um uh, I'm, uh what they call mount baker but it's actually Akinmi, which is part of our, it's in our emergent stories. It's in our, our traditional um, stories. Right. And so, yeah, so I live in my homelands on purpose. Of it's course. the only place where I would buy a home. Um, yeah. And I bought the home when I found out from Tunaha that we have a tradition of holding space or, or, or taking care of place for the use of family. Mm -hmm. So, their places they might think of it in terms of like trap lines or you know hunting grounds or that sort of thing and so right. when I heard that tradition I thought you know what I will take up this place so that my children have a home to go home to mm -hmm. because I never did yeah I've never had a home to go to so yeah well you do now um I do <laughs> Yeah, you do. And and Michelle, I mean, there. I, I really hope that we can actually do this again, because there's so much more that we can be talking about. Um, and we're almost out of time, but I don't want to leave you without asking you about learning to the Tunaha language, because I know that there aren't very many 
Tanaha speakers, and you're you're learning it. Yes, um, there are many many young people who are learning it in earnest, who are doing a much better job of this work. Um, I learn. It's interesting because when I when I first came back to do my research and I was giving concepts back to knowledge holders to to a few that are no longer here, we would talk about the words in English. And that's why child welfare became about the welfare of children, right? Because child welfare was something completely else. And so we would talk through it, talk through it. And then they would give me concepts in Tanaha and then they would explain what those concepts mean. And so I talk a lot, as people can probably tell. Um, and so I would talk through with them with dictionaries and we would go through. And, and that's how I've learned the language is to understand the concepts that are really important. I feel, you know, I'm an infant speaker. I know how to say things that are important, that that heart and content, right? Spirit content. Um, I know how to say those things and I use those terms. Right. Um, and for me, it's it's songs as well and stories mm. and, and participation and ceremony as well. And but Tanaha is a is an is uh in danger of becoming extinct. And we have a lot of young people who are trying. That's good to know. About how many native Tanaha speakers are still alive that are that I would are... say under twenty. See, that's I would say even less than that. Um, well, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that you're saying that a lot of young people are learning the language because that's 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 a very visible sign of what was done to your people and to so many uh, First Nations across the country that they lost the language. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, it wasn't lost. It was stolen. It yeah. was purposefully stolen from us. Um, Michelle, uh, thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. I, I know that it wasn't enough time, but that's maybe mm -hmm. a good excuse to, to get you back and we can hang out together again. Um, thank you for sharing uh, a little bit about you and about your people and your, your ideas, your thoughts, your experiences with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Husukath Kokane. There were so many things that Michelle said that moved me into deep thought and reflection. She said that she honored her father's people by following her mother's lineage. She said that already before she was adopted, her identity was already set. She also said that many of us, especially those who've left their countries to go somewhere else, experience trauma, and that trauma is passed down through generations. That is not something specific to indigenous people. She also said that she is an infant Tunaha speaker and that there are no more than 20 native Tunaha speakers in the world. There is lots to think about there. You can learn more about Michelle and her work and even invite her to speak at your event. Go to her website, michellesam.com. Both Sean Vincent and Michelle Sam are very accomplished, and they show that no matter who we are, young people need connections to family, culture, language, and inspiration and encouragement from others in order to succeed. Perhaps that is something that we can all take away today. Who have you inspired today? 
to learn more about all indigenous issues, especially as they intersect with the Catholic Church. And for resources, you can visit our website, eselmedia.org healing. To listen to all our Salt and Light Hour programs and especially to other Indigenous Voices episodes, visit us at eselmedia.org podcast. And to watch all the events of the Papal Visit to Canada and to read the Holy Father's addresses, go to eselmedia.org slash Pope in Canada. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you.